you will turn with me to Luke chapter 11. Luke 11, we continue in our series through the gospel of Luke this morning. We are looking at verses 37 through 54. I will tell you up front, we probably won't make it through all of them. We will pick up next week. So when it gets to be time and I'm only halfway through, don't stress out. We'll cut it off. I know you're getting hungry already. Title of our sermon this morning is Woe to You. Our key words for our worshipers in training are woe, heart, and religion. Now, in the 1800s, one of the most influential theologians of Victorian America was a man by the name of Horace Bushnell. Bushnell's ministerial goal was to accommodate evangelical Christianity with the changing ideas and modern trends of the modern world. He insisted that the creeds of Christianity and all of the Bible should be read poetically instead of having a literal understanding of the text according to its genre. Likewise, he denied that the crucifixion of Jesus Christ was a substitutionary atoning payment to satisfy the wrath of God on behalf of his people. Instead, he taught that it was an act of love by a Savior whose willingness to suffer with humanity illustrated the love of God, even as it provided a model for a moral life. In 1861, Bushnell published a book entitled The Character of Jesus, in which he said Christian character was not developed through the evangelical, uh, evangelistic preaching of his contemporaries, nor was it something that was developed uh, on its own, but rather it was through the nurture of a mother. He believed that thinking should take a back seat to feeling and mothers were best able to cultivate character traits in their children at an early age because understanding the ministry and the work and the doctrine of Christ was not nearly as important as understanding Christ's character and conforming to it. But what mattered to Bushnell was that people simply had a strong bond of friendship with Jesus. Now, what developed from that, of course, is exactly what we see in the aftermath of Bushnell's teaching. In the book I just mentioned, he described Jesus repeatedly using metaphors from nature. In keeping with his understanding of the cultivation of Christian character, he, he compared the development of Jesus to the unfolding of a flower. His childhood was a kind of celestial flower. In his youth, he was a sacred flower, emitting a fragrance wafted on us from other worlds. At death, he was a bruised flower, drooping on his cross. Jesus had, in Bushnell's terms, a compliant character nurtured by his mother Mary. He was gentle and humble and patient. He endured suffering without complaint or resistance. He submitted always to the will of God. He sympathized with the poor who knew him as a friend. He didn't crave worldly success and he utterly lacked guile. And as his character unfolds on the pages of Scripture we see that he is wholly innocent, not only of sin, but also of any selfishness. He was, quote, a perfectly harmless being, 
actuated by no destructive passions, gentle to inferiors, doing ill or injury to none. At death he was holy, harmless, and undefiled. In summary, Jesus was a compassionate and companionate human being who exhibited a a full measure of what Bushnell termed the passive virtues. The result was what has been termed the feminization of American Christianity, where a 19th century turn was taken largely away from a focus on precision and theological truth that one might have true communion with God and walk in obedience to what God has commanded, toward an emphasis on entertaining stories and emotional experiences that excited the senses. What arose was many of the images that you see depicting Jesus today. Jesus surrounded always by by lambs and little children, or even Jesus, a child himself, small and helpless, always with a smile, always with a clean robe, Nicely groomed hair, bright blue eyes. Entertaining and edifying was the aim. And Jesus was effectively emptied of every form of masculinity, authority, and power. Sentimental Protestantism was born. Unfortunately, that false teaching of the 19th century in America has, for the most part, not gone away, but has, in fact, only been built up and highlighted all the more. The near absence of church discipline, doctrinal preaching, moral and ethical absolutes within the church and regulative worship in the 21st century church is a direct result of the flounderings of the 19th century ideas. I bring all this up to say we have arrived in the Gospel of Luke at a place that is virtually unknown to most evangelicals in terms of identifying Jesus as he actually was and is. While some of what Bushnell described about Jesus was very true, it was only partially true and came at the exclusion of many of the more prominent character traits as evidenced in the gospel accounts. In the text we have before us this morning, we see that from his opening words to his final sentence, Jesus was stern, he was candid, he was passionate, he was intense, he was even fierce. Those who have feminized Jesus and and made silly claims about truth being divisive and unknowable, they would hear this and allege that Jesus' message and style of delivery was insensitive and hurtful to his intended audience. But of course, that would be a gross misjudgment. Sensitivity entails being perceptive of another person's feelings. There's no way Jesus, who could see directly into the hearts of men, could possibly have failed to perceive what they were feeling. Furthermore, as personally aggravating as it might be to find oneself on the receiving end of a tirade like we will see with Jesus delivering to the Pharisees and the lawyers in our text today, what would have been truly hurtful would have been for Jesus to pretend as though spiritual danger was not present for the Pharisees. 
So as always, he told them what they most needed to hear, declaring the truth to them in unvarnished language. Under the circumstances, this was the greatest kindness that Jesus could have possibly shown to them. And the tenor of his words remind us of the reality of what we looked at last week. There is a battle between the kingdom of light and the kingdom of darkness. It is a fierce conflict between spiritual lies and and damnably erroneous doctrine and destructive false religion. It's significant that Jesus was undoubtedly the most sensitive person to have ever walked the earth, and yet, in circumstances like we will see, he refused to tone down the message, he refused to adopt a delicate tone, and he handled his spiritual adversaries according to their danger. Too much was at stake for Jesus to preach in the way that we often hear today. Let's begin in verse 37 to see exactly what we're talking about. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. Now, before we push on, remember who Jesus is dealing with here and who invited him to dinner. This Pharisee is among the men who Jesus was addressing in the passage we looked at last week. A man who had access to every bit of true light of the word of God, but was darkened by pride and greed and self-righteous religious adherence, so that the supposed light within him wasn't light at all. It was actually darkness. He was one of Jesus' most bitter enemies. So don't assume here as we read this that this Pharisee was wanting to dine with Jesus because he was being hospitable or wanting to learn from him or interested in becoming his friend. That's not the case. The Pharisees, as we will see at the end of this whole passage, were constantly on the lookout, seeking to find a point at which they could catch Jesus in some sort of error that they could accuse him and punish him according to their traditions, which to them meant with Jesus that he would be put to death. So the invite wasn't out of the kindness of his heart to be hospitable. The invite was supposed to be a trap. And Jesus saw right through it. Look at verse 38. The Pharisee was astonished to see that Jesus did not first wash before dinner. When the Gospel of Mark deals with this issue of Jesus not washing, Mark includes a little parenthetical statement to help us understand exactly what's going on here. Because unless you're from a Jewish household, you have no real grasp exactly on why this was such a big deal. In Mark chapter 7, we read, The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when, they be, and when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. This is from the Gospel of Mark. So you see what Luke is pointing out here is that Jesus displayed complete and utter disregard for the traditions of the Pharisees. He was intentionally making a point here. From verse 37, we see that Jesus simply entered the home 
He went directly to the table and reclined. He didn't stop and go through this thorough ritual of washing before he approached the table. And immediately, what does the Pharisee do? He sees Jesus and his disregard for their tradition and was, in Luke's words, astonished. But again, let's not give the Pharisee too much credit here. He wasn't astonished because he thought Jesus had poor hygiene. He was incensed that Jesus was ignoring the traditions and extra-biblical rituals of the Pharisees, as recorded in their book, the Mishnah. It was a premeditated, calculated move on Jesus' part, an in-your-face attack against the legal-hearted Pharisees who had no concept of the darkness in their own hearts. They had no concept of their self-righteousness. The Lord spoke of such men in Isaiah 29 when he said, This people draw near with their mouths and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. They didn't fear God. They feared breaking the commandments of men. And Jesus, discerning the heart of this Pharisee, says very much the same thing. Let's keep reading in verse 39. And the Lord said to him, now notice, nothing was said. Jesus recognized what was going on in the Pharisees' hearts. He said, now you Pharisees, cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish. But inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools. Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within And behold, everything is clean for you. Jesus lines up his sights, taking direct aim at the Pharisees' externalism. They had a multitude of outward rituals that portrayed them as generous and holy, but inwardly, Jesus says they were full of greed and wickedness. The Pharisees were consumed by a love of money. They were greedy. They were always seeking selfish gain. And the Bible makes abundantly clear, particularly in the teachings of Jesus, that our degree of attachment to money and possessions and self-gain is an unfailing indicator of the health of our souls. The Pharisees' hearts were the exact antithesis of what their external religiosity displayed. And we too must beware, brothers and sisters. A heart full of greed and a heart full of wickedness is a heart that is far from the kingdom of God. We must beware lest we have ritually clean hands with wicked and darkened hearts. Let our external lip service not be at odds with our internal heart reality. Imagine visiting a friend this afternoon for lunch and they give you a cup to drink. And as you look at the cup, you say, oh, this cup that you gave me has a lot of uh, buildup on the inside of it. Could I get another one? And your friend looks at it and responds, what are you talking about? Look at the outside of this cup. It's clean. In fact, it's really clean. What do you mean it's dirty? Meanwhile, you watch as your friend is over with a towel cleaning every smudge, every particle off the outside of another cup. 
while never looking at the inside to clean it. You quickly realize that the cup you have in your hand, like all of the other cups, has never been cleaned on the inside, but only on the outside. It's been untouched since its first use. It's a disgusting picture, isn't it? It's the picture Jesus paints to show the condition of the Pharisees' hearts. And so it is with the lives of many of our neighbors, perhaps even some of us. We're surrounded by a people who don't drink or cuss or chew or date girls or guys who do, but they will gladly gossip and slander and revile others with hearts full of greed and pride and anger. It's a wickedness of the most vile kind. Hiding behind a veil of cultural Christianity, a false gospel of moralistic propriety with a heart that clearly indicates one's disdain for the law of God and a new life that is birthed in true faith and repentance in Jesus Christ. Jesus says to this Pharisee in verse 40, You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. When's the last time you called someone a fool to their face without getting socked in the mouth? <laughs> Jesus tells them they are foolish in their religious, high-browed externalism that has no mark of godliness, no mark of holiness whatsoever. And he warns them in verse 41, give away your greed, give away your wickedness, get rid of your sin in your heart, and then everything will be clean for you. Not only the outside of the cup, but also the inside of your cup. In so many ways, on numerous occasions, this was Jesus' appeal to the Pharisees. And indeed, it is Jesus' appeal to all of us. He wants a people who are inwardly transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. A people whose outward obedience is there, but it's, it's an overflow of a thankfulness of heart. Desiring to make much of Christ and His glory. He wants a people of true spirituality, who've been changed from the inside out, not the outside in. A people who engage in true holiness, not a litany of rituals and religious practices that they might be seen and applauded by men. It really is a blow to much of what we are surrounded by day by day in our culture. If you think about it, it's really a blow to every religion of the world who by their works seek to earn favor with their false god. And believe me, when I say, at this point, Jesus is just getting warmed up. His rebuke with regard to the heart of the Pharisees was the foundation of what he's about to say. He's going to pronounce three woes upon the Pharisees in verses 42 through 44, and then three woes he will pronounce upon the lawyers in verses 46 through 52. Now, when Jesus is pronouncing woes, he is prophetically denouncing the evil deeds of the Pharisees and the lawyers. It is in the same way that we see the prophets of the Old Testament pronouncing woes upon the nations. 
Another way to think about these woes is him saying, beware. Judgment is coming to you because of your deeds. Beware, you will perish under the judgment of God if you do not repent of these sins. So, you see, Jesus obviously forgot to read the book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. It's not quite where he's going with our text today. Let's look at each of Jesus' woes, beginning in verse 42. But woe to you, Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. In the Old Testament, we can see that the Israelites were required to tithe in all sorts of ways. For the priests, for the Levites, the poor, and for the support of Jerusalem. These regulations received extensive treatment in the rabbinic literature as they developed this, their own system, a 12-tithe system. Every seven years, there was a cycle of six different tithes that they were supposed to give at different places at different times. It was a confusing, very burdensome system that the Pharisees were fastidiously looking after in the home of every Jew. So Jesus is dealing with the fact that these men were focused on a system of regulations instead of the intention of God's law. They were going well beyond what the law required them in their tithing. Jesus focused on mint and rue and every herb. Why? Well, because their writings themselves exempted them from tithing these specific spices. And yet they did it anyway. Why? To look very religious to externally present themselves as holy men. And just imagine, you get a package of garlic powder from the store, and before you do anything with it, you weigh it all out and meticulously separate out 10% so that you can give for one of your 12 ties to the proper people at the proper time. And you don't only do this with your garlic powder, you do it with every spice on your spice rack, even the ones we don't actually know what to do with and how to pronounce them. We divide them up and we keep them aside so that we can give them at the right time at the right place. So Jesus says, woe to you. Look at yourselves. You're so concerned with every last grain of salt and every speck of dried oregano, but you neglect the justice of God and his love. Pharisees were legendary tithers. And they were always mad at all of the other Jews because... For the most part, they did not adhere to the Pharisees' laws of tithing. But the Pharisees were also very defiled inwardly in every way. Kent Hughes writes about this. Most preachers would not mind a few such givers. Come to my church, all you Pharisees and heavy laden givers, and you shall find rest for your checkbooks. How prone all of us are, really to overlook the weightier matters of the law because all of the external ducks are in a row. But the fact is with the Pharisees that they had a disdain for the needy, for the stranger, for the orphans, and for the widows. It was the same sin of their forefathers, those addressed by the prophet Micah. He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to act justly, to have mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. 
Similarly, the prophet Amos said of the Lord, I hate, I despise your religious feasts. I cannot stand your assemblies. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps. But let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. The external religion of the people was a stench to God's smell. It was disdainful before the eyes of God. And like their forefathers, the Pharisees had calculated everything externally, never taking inventory internally. They calculated their tithing down to the decimal point. They never missed a basil leaf. But when someone came to them with a personal material need, they responded with hatred. And Jesus could not tolerate this. There was no justice. There was no righteousness. We're reminded in 1 John 3, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Brothers and sisters, we see all throughout the scriptures very clearly a lack of concern and personal care and aid to others is a sure indication of a lack of love for God. Jesus goes on in verse 43. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. If there was one thing the Pharisees loved, and if there's one thing that all legalists love, it's to be recognized and admired by others. In the synagogues, the Pharisees would sit up front facing the entire gathering of the people and they'd be very animated throughout all of the various elements of the service. So you can imagine if I were to sit up here facing you during the worship service and when we have a joyful song of praise to God that I jump around and I get really excited. And then when it's our time for a prayer of repentance that I I fall on my knees, on my face and I do everything I can to make myself weep. And then I try my hardest to, to get up for the next song and for the scripture reading and for our prayers and, and to adjust my facial expressions and my, my body language to communicate to all of you my religiosity so that everyone could see and look and say, what a holy man, what a holy man. This was what the Pharisees did before the people of the synagogues week in and week out. And they loved, they loved being greeted in the marketplace. The more elaborate the greeting, the more flattering, the better. Ah, Rabbi Elazar, glorious doctor of the Torah, repository of solemnic ephiographs, son of Amos, son of Saul, and on and on and on. They loved it. How foolish, how incredibly prideful. But you know, it wasn't unique to the Pharisees by any means. It's all around us, isn't it? Charles Spurgeon once commented, I know, brethren, who from head to foot, 
in garb, tone, manner, necktie, and boots are so utterly religious that no particle of manhood is visible. One young sprig of divinity must need go through the streets in a gown, and another of the high church order has recorded it in the newspapers with much complacency that he traversed Switzerland and Italy wearing in all places his beretta. It's a square hat that was worn by Roman Catholic clergy. He ends by saying, Few boys would ever have been so proud of a fool's cap. You see, in today, when churches send out flyers with a picture of their pastor and his wife on the front, or you see a billboard advertising these things, or an advertisement for our all-star worship bands, national recording artists, and internationally recognized preachers, what is that? It's foolishness. It's pride. It's a desire to see for others to see who we think we are. It's the epitome of religious pride. It leaves no room for the very God that is supposedly being served and worshipped. There's no room in that for authentic Christian faith. Where are the words of John the Baptist? I must decrease that he might increase. Not put my picture on the front of an advertisement so you'll come to see me. In John 5.44, Jesus addressed the same issues among the Pharisees asking, How can you believe if you accept praise from one another, yet make no effort to obtain the praise that comes from the only God? In other words, you can have either the praise of man or you can have the praise of God, but you cannot have both. You decide which one you want. Friends, are you quick to make sure that everyone sees your religious deeds, knows exactly what you've done and how you've done it? Of course, it's not, it's not wrong for us to rejoice in what God accomplishes through us and, and to be thankful for, for what God has has led us to and praising him for all the great things that he's, he's done. But everyone knows in their heart whether or not they're seeking the praise of man. Most often our day, it's, it's sort of a passive-aggressive form. I'm so glad I was blessed to single-handedly give $25,000 to feed 5,000 starving children in the poorest neighborhood of my, my town. I'm so glad and honored that they've decided to name a park after me because of it. Please, if you're my friend, you'll, you'll want to be at the dedication ceremony next week. I don't do what I do to be recognized. I'm not here for accolades, but you're going to want to be there. You're going to want to come and see what's going on. But really, it's all about God, is it? Because it sure sounds like it's all about you. Brothers and sisters, the praise of man is a terrible, disastrous trap. And it's made all the easier to seek after today through things like social media. It's usually hidden in little statements intended to elicit a complimentary response and probably veiling some kind of anger that was fueled by the comments of another person or an off-putting remark. See things like, I'm not a perfect father, but at least I still provide for my children and my wife. 
Here's what that really means most often. Someone said something about me as a dad, so I need to be validated by someone else. Please tell me how wonderful I am. Please remind me how I'm not like all those other guys. Please remind everyone that I'm God's gift to fatherhood. And the more, more and more dads should try to be just like me. That's what that means. And it comes in thousands of forms. Pride is ugly. Pride is divisive. And unfortunately, it's so descriptive of the hearts of all people that most often we have a hard time recognizing it in ourselves. Beware, brothers and sisters, that you seek the greatest seats of honor and the highest amounts of praise. The question we have to ask always is, who are you really serving? Who is your real master? Is it the praise of man or is it the glory of God? And by the way, the fear of man is very much the same thing. When we fear man, it's just as much pride as when we put ourselves forward in the best seats seeking the best honor. We fear man because we don't fear God higher. He goes on in verse 44. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. Jesus' comparison of the Pharisees to unmarked graves assumes here a bit of knowledge of Old Testament purity laws concerning contact with corpses. Touching a dead body rendered a man unclean, so graves were marked as to warn individuals of the existence of a corpse, protecting them from uncleanliness. Now, there's a great irony in what Jesus is telling the Pharisees here. They were so very concerned to maintain the boundaries of purity, but they absolutely failed to be impure in the eyes of God. In neglecting justice, in neglecting the love of God, they became the impure objects with which they so zealously sought to avoid. And as a result of their own impurity, everyone interacting with them was rendered impure. The Pharisees, so concerned about their external religion, were actually sources of spiritual contamination to unsuspecting Israelites. They were unclean. They were deceptive. Their religiosity drew individuals to them because they appeared to be right with God. They appeared to have it all together. They appeared to be holy. But it ruined everyone who came to them. Truly, there's no lack of examples for this in our day, is there? Men who outwardly present themselves as teachers of God's word, possessors of true faith, who in reality are men seeking to get wealthy off religion, men who seek a great name for themselves as they build their own personal kingdoms. Hypocrites like the Pharisees, filled with greed, stingy hard-heartedness, pride, and self-righteousness. And be there no mistake, all of us eventually communicate what we truly are. We can do all the supposed right things externally, but eventually those who know us will know the reality of our hearts. It cannot be hidden. Our artificiality, our elitism, our anger, our hostility, our hatred, our bitterness, 
Ultimately, our hatred for God cannot be concealed if it's in our hearts. Our lives are packed full every day with opportunities to respond according to God's word. And our responses to the circumstances in our lives are very telling of our hearts within. Is it cold and dead? Is your body simply a casket containing the bones of a spiritually dead corpse? Brothers and sisters, the Pharisees show us why it is so vitally important that we study and understand the word of God. Because our hearts are so easily deceived. We are so easily prone to bite into teachings that tickle our ears and excite our flesh. And sometimes it's even teaching that is really burdensome and legal. And we accept it because it appeals to our senses. Sometimes, it, as long as it feels like a burden, and we feel beat up and weighed down by it, it must be the right thing, you see. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? That's what Jesus sets us free from. Don't assume I'm saying God doesn't require obedience and holiness. It does require our effort as we strive to accomplish what God commands of us. But what I'm saying is that we cannot earn God's favor. We cannot live up to God's perfect standard. We need a mediator. We need a savior. We need a substitute. We need something other than our own righteousness. We need the righteousness of another. We need pure, unadulterated grace. We read the words of Jesus in Matthew 11, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. It's not what the Pharisees put forward. It's not what the Pharisees sought to place on all of the people. Brothers and sisters, if the gospel you hear is not the gospel of Christ and him crucified on our behalf, paying the penalty for our sin, taking upon himself the full wrath of God, and in exchange crediting his righteousness to our account, that we can stand blameless before him on the day of judgment, then it's no gospel at all. Friends, if you are depending upon your works, if you're depending upon being a good person to find your way into heaven, you are falling far short of what God requires and of what Christ supplies. We are saved by Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, to the glory of God alone. And if we possess this faith, all of our thoughts, all of our desires, all of our actions will be rooted in the faith that is confessed with our lips. It's not about externalism. It's about our hearts. Unrepentant virgins will go to hell. Repentant harlots will find their way to heaven. How? How is this possible? Jesus tells us in verse 41, Give us alms those things that are within, and behold, everything is clean for you. 
If you are a believer in Christ, you've been born again. You are living a new life as a new creation and the old life has passed away. The Holy Spirit has made you new. He has washed the inside of your dirty cup. And now you must perpetually give everything that is within you as alms. There must be an ongoing inspection in the light of God's word, regular confession, constant petition for the Spirit's power to enable you to live a pure and holy life by the grace of God. But there are those of you here who do not have true faith. And I tell you, no amount of external reform or supposed right living or moral uprightness will please God. It will never produce a true love for God and a love for your neighbor that is in the heart of a true Christian. Some of you have rejected the gospel. Some of you have rejected the call of God on every man, woman, and child to repent and to believe the gospel. The outside of your cup may look very clean, but the inside is vile. Repent of your sins and give God your old heart as an alm that you might be made new in Christ Jesus and everything about you be found clean. God alone can do this work. God alone we must trust in. God alone will turn us all from Pharisees to repentant, humble servants of the Most High, Righteous, and Holy King, Jesus. Let's stop there. We'll pick up from there as we meet together next week. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the unashamed, direct, poignant words of Jesus to address the vile sins of the hearts of mankind. And Lord, lest we think ourselves exempt from the sins of the Pharisees, I pray that you help us to take inventory of our own lives to consider our own desires, to consider our own longings, to consider the ways that we serve and seek to be seen and known by men. God, I pray that you make all of us keenly aware of our external works that are done not out of a heart of thankfulness, not out of a heart of obedience to what you have commanded, but simply out of a heart of being recognized, of being known. Lord, I pray that everything that we do, every word that we speak, every email that we type, every Facebook and Twitter post that we put up, that they not be that we can receive the praise and accolades of the world, but that they only be seasoned with grace and humility and joy that is in Christ alone. Help us to not be a self-righteous, legal-hearted bunch of people, but a people who walk obediently in holiness, that you would be glorified and that our lives would be more whole and complete as people created in your image. And we pray, God, for those here who hear the preaching of your word and the call on their lives to repent of their sin and to believe in the gospel of Christ. 
that you, by the power of your word and the Holy Spirit, would transform their hearts, bring them from death to life, out of the darkness into the marvelous light that is ours in Christ Jesus. God, do that for your glory. Father, thank you for your word. I pray that none of us leave here unaffected by the truth of what you have given to us. Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for Christ. And we're thankful for the healing balm of the gospel. Your word wounds us. Your gospel heals us. And the law gives us that which is needed to walk in obedience to all that you have commanded for our good. Lord, may we fulfill these things for Christ's sake. It's in his name we pray.